do celebrate Trinity Sunday, which is the first Sunday after Pentecost in our church calendar each year. And by Trinity, we mean the Holy Trinity. In other words, the three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. This doctrine of the Trinity is a hard one to define, but the early church fathers did it best in the fourth century when they wrote the Nicene Creed. That's the creed that we Anglicans say each Sunday morning right after the sermon. Now, I don't know if you ever wonder about why it's right after the sermon, but it was done as a corrective to bad preaching. So if bad theology is preached, we get the creed, which is good. So just in case you're wondering. Well, many other church denominations say it each Sunday also. And I did once hear the story, this is a true story, by the way, of a couple from such a denomination. Their friends from India traveled to California on business and they brought with them their 11-year-old daughter. Well, one weekend while they were working, these friends from India left their daughter with this couple. And curious about going to church, something that she had never done before in her life, the girl decided to join them that Sunday. Well, naturally, when they returned home from church, the couple asked her what she thought of the service and of the liturgy. And she thought for a moment, and then she replied, I don't understand why the West Coast isn't included too. Confused, they asked her what she meant. She added, you know, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the whole East Coast. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Non-understanding is certainly something that goes hand in hand with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Many people have tried to explain it using all kinds of analogies and diagrams from triangles to clovers to the three properties of water and yet will always struggle to understand the mystery of the Trinity. Perhaps the best single sentence I've ever read to summarize this mystery is this. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God but co-equally and co-eternally God. But even that is still hard to grasp. Whether or not we understand the Trinity fully, what we do know is that the three persons of the Trinity all working together are crucial in bringing about the salvation of mankind. This is revealed through our three scripture readings today and also throughout all of scripture. Today, we'll see how it is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit plays a role in helping humans to come to know and love him. So let's take a look at our first reading today from Exodus chapter 3. And in our Old Testament reading, we hear the well-known story of Moses and the burning bush, or at least the bush that looks like it's burning but isn't. I remember a time when we, the Bennett family, were living in an apartment in West Ashley, and I was woken up in the middle of the night by an unusually loud popping sound, pop, pop. And lying in my bed, I just couldn't figure out what this noise was or where it was coming from. So eventually, I just had to get up and take a look around. Well, I quickly realized that it wasn't coming from inside of the apartment, but outside. So curious, I went to the window, I opened the blinds to peek out, and lo and behold, 30 yards away, a car was on fire right outside of my window. I couldn't believe it. I was a little bit panicked and wondered what to do, and then immediately I heard these sirens in the distance and thought, okay, good, someone else has heard this, and they have called the fire department. And they arrived quickly, and they extinguished the fire quickly. Well, Moses is also encountering a bizarre and unexpected situation, and he's intrigued by this, and so he goes over to the bush to take a closer look. But this strange fire that Moses encounters is one that cannot be put out by any fire department. 
Now, throughout scripture, fire is a symbol of the unquenchable power and presence of God, in particular, his Holy Spirit. For instance, think as though those flames that hovered over the disciples' heads at Pentecost. We talked about this just last week. And it's God who calls out to Moses now from the flames saying, Moses, Moses, God knows who he is. And he communicates with him in a personal way. You see, God in Trinity is God in relationship. And even in the Old Testament, we can see how God isn't impersonal or abstract, as many of us tend to think, but that he knows us intimately. Well, Moses simply responds, here I am. And then God explains who it is that Moses is dealing with, in case he had any doubts. And Moses realizes that he shouldn't be taken lightly. This God of his forefathers is a holy God. Yes, he may know Moses by name, but he's powerful beyond human understanding. And so Moses takes off his shoes and he won't even look at him. He knows that he's unworthy to be in the presence of almighty God. Like each one of us, he's a sinner and as such cannot enter the presence of God. In this story, we see the incredible power and presence of God. It's revealed through his spirit. And yet we also see the personal touch of God, intimate in how he deals with his people. Well, leaping forward to our second story from the Gospel of John, we have an encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And if you haven't seen it yet, I've been plugging it enough, but I'd encourage you to watch The Chosen, and in particular, episode seven of season one, where we get to see the encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. And I love the way the writers portray this encounter between them. But who is Nicodemus? Well, he's one of the Jewish religious leaders. He's a member of the political elite In fact, he is no less than the teacher of Israel, as Jesus puts it in verse 9. But notice that this important man comes at night. You see, Jesus isn't someone that uh, he thinks that he should be seen with, but he is desperate to figure out who he really is. And so he's willing to risk his power and his status and to come. Now, notice first what he says in verse two. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. It's an incredible admission, isn't it? The ruling religious leaders already know that Jesus is from God already. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. Well, they may know that he's from God, but they certainly don't understand who he is or what he's doing. They may have their ideas and their thoughts, but as you continue on in this conversation, you hear how Jesus' responses to Nicodemus's questions constantly challenge the way that Nicodemus is thinking. He just doesn't get it. However, Jesus doesn't give up. He keeps trying to lead him to a place of understanding like any good teacher. He responds to his opening remarks by saying, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, this confuses Nicodemus. In verse four, he replies, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, many of us who grew up in the church are used to this term born again. And perhaps it isn't quite as perplexing to us. But to Nicodemus, this is a new idea. After all, no one's born twice, are they? But not only is he thinking this is physiologically impossible, it's also contrary to what Jews believed theologically. They were the chosen people after all. And they believed that when the Messiah arrived, it would be at the end of history and the Jews would simply be granted eternal life. 
So as a devout Jew, he believed his place was already guaranteed in the kingdom of heaven. But now he's hearing that something else needs to take place. And this thing seems absurd. And so Jesus explains further, saying in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, this really shouldn't come as a surprise to such a devout Jew, someone who knows the Old Testament. Jesus is drawing directly from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, where God says to the Israelites, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, uh, statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is reaffirming what the prophets already say. And there's no amount or that there's no amount of devout behavior that can save Nicodemus. No, the key to salvation and to eternal life is receiving a new heart by baptism in water and the spirit, as we'll encounter in a moment. It's God's grace and his mercy to save us. His free gift for those who believe in him, not our nationality or our deeds that saves us. No. As Jesus then so famously says in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is God's love that saves us. And notice that his love is for all people. It's for all people, not just one nation, not just one tribe. He wants all people to live, not perish. But each person has a choice to make. He will not force himself upon them. The question is, will we respond to his offer and believe in him or will we turn our backs on him? The good news is that this holy God that we encountered in the burning bush, who we cannot draw near to because of our sin, is offering a way for us to draw near to him, which is by the second person of the Trinity, his son being lifted up, as we heard in that reading, lifted up on a cross and paying the price for the debt we couldn't pay. Yes, in this passage, we see the work of the Trinity. The Father gives out of his great love. The Son dies as a perfect sacrifice in order that sin might be atoned for. And the Spirit enters into the believer's heart in order that they might live, live eternally in relationship with the Father and also other believers. Well, finally, we come to our New Testament lesson, Romans chapter 8, and what an incredible passage this is to end on. Here we see that all those who recognize their unworthiness to draw near to this holy God, yet who decide to repent and believe in him, are adopted as his children and call him Abba, meaning father. It's quite an amazing thing for Paul, a once devout Jew and a Pharisee like Nicodemus, to write. Abba is such a homely, familial word, much like a child today might call their father daddy. Yes, there's an intimacy to this. A number of years ago, one of my children, who was probably about six at the time, asked me if she could call me dad instead of daddy. But at age six, I just couldn't let go of the intimacy that comes with being called daddy. When your child climbs up into your lap and daddy, you know? And so guess what I said? No way! (laughs) It's not happening! No! And I've had the same response to each of my kids when they ask me that question at a young age. They're welcome to call me dad now, but it's surprising how they still call me daddy. I just want to hold on a little bit longer. 
to that intimacy, the, the closeness of relationship that that spre- expresses that I have with my children. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. But no Jew would have dared address God in this manner. And yet Jesus certainly does it in his prayers. And now, so too can all who repent and believe in him. You see, when we choose to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship with God. We saw that in Romans. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. We are no longer slaves to fear because we have become God's children. You know, I sometimes hear people say that, well, everyone is a child of God. Believer, non-believer, everyone in the world is a child of God. But this just isn't true. Yes, we are all made in the image of God. That is true. And it gives us worth and value. Absolutely. But again, Jesus or God does not force us to become a part of his family. He doesn't do it. This is a choice we have to make. And if we do, then we become his children. That's interesting to note that the word sonship in this passage also means adoption. And in Greco-Roman culture, the idea of adoption was a little different than how we might think of it. In the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was someone deliberately chosen by his adoptive father, someone who probably couldn't have children, and it was chosen to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. And he might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily than a son born naturally. And of course, this son would then become become his heir. And Paul picks up on this analogy in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. All those who choose to follow Jesus will inherit a heavenly inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. We inherit God himself and our relationship with him. The glorious day is coming when he will be all in all and everything to everyone. But do notice that there is a qualification at the very end of this passage in verse 17. We will be heirs glorified with him, provided we suffer with him. Yes, we too must share in Jesus' sufferings, taking up our cross in order that we may also share in his glory. Throughout scripture, there's a strong emphasis placed on the idea that suffering is the path to glory. Not something we always like to talk about or dwell on. And yet how many of us suffer a lot in our lives? And this is the path that Jesus took and that he told his disciples that they would take. And here Paul reiterates that Christians will suffer, something he certainly knew himself. He even tells them a little earlier in Romans to rejoice in their suffering. Rejoice in your suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we are to follow Jesus then we must expect to suffer. It shouldn't be something that surprises us. And we don't do it out of some masochistic pleasure or because we become so obnoxious to the non-believers around us that they start to hate us. But we do it out of a rightly motivated desire to sacrificially love God and to love our neighbor. And the good news is that as we suffer, we grow in endurance and character and hope. So what about you? Do you recognize that there's a holy God? 
Do you see your need for a savior? Are you willing to repent, believe in him and accept the free gift of eternal life he offers to all those born again of water and the spirit? And do you now live in the knowledge that he's your good father and you are his child, dearly loved by him and in close relationship with him, an heir with all the rights that come with that, but also someone willing to suffer for him, daily laying down your rights and your life to serve him and to serve those around you, those who know Jesus and those who don't. This is the gospel we proclaim. This is the Trinitarian hope that we have. A father who loves the world he created so much that he is willing to send his son to die upon a cross in order that the world might live, not die, being regenerated by his spirit. It's what we celebrate on Trinity Sunday and every day, in fact. This is the message we have to proclaim to a lost and hurting world in desperate need of salvation, a lonely and broken world in need of relationship and community. Are you willing to bring this good news to your family, to your neighbors, to your work colleagues, to your school friends, or are you going to hoard it for yourself? Or is this the good news that you have been longing to hear? Today you came and finally you heard exactly what you've been longing to hear all your life. Are you willing to accept it for yourself and to stop running from God? If so, I would encourage you to repent and believe and then do one more thing that the Trinity reveals to us, to enter into relationship with other believers. The Trinity, think about it, they are in constant communion with one another. And that's how humans are designed to be, to be in relationship. And there's no better way to live this out than to enter into the church body more fully through worship, through the sacraments, through service, through small group ministries, entered into committed relationship with other Christians. Don't try and go it alone any longer. Live as God lives and as he intended you to live too. And then you will experience life in all of its fullness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come, come, come by your spirit and lead us to your son, that we might believe in him and we might live for him, empowered to serve you all the days of our life, Lord Jesus, that we might live life to the full, even as suffering comes, even as sadness comes, Lord, that we will have life in its fullness as we continue to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.